This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. A good crime novel keeps you guessing until the very end, and that's what Benjamin Stevenson has written in The Other Side of Midnight. Welcome, Benjamin. Hi, thanks for having me. Sam Widford was the compare of a TV show. I'm quoting a bit from the book, Midnight Tonight was light entertainment masquerading as news, human interest stories laced with gentle political ribbing, harmless stuff. Now, I'm sure everybody recognises this type of TV show. So let's hear how Sam uh, is seen by the author, Benjamin. Benjamin, would you mind reading uh, from page seven, please? The intro music swelled and Sam started talking. Despite a career in television, Beth was still struck by the dazzle of it. Sam Midford seemed to switch to Mr. Binite in a breath. Calm blue eyes locked forward on camera one. Anyone would guess he had to be a bit of a wonder kid to host his own nightly television show at 29, and he delivered on that expectation. Warm, charming, everything about him polished and image conscious. He flashed a giant smile. His teeth were like American Republican voters, white and straight. This is from page seven, very early in the book. In the part, it's called, We Interrupt This Broadcast. So tell us what happened to Sam. Sure. So Sam, he's, as in that passage, he's delivering his opening monologue. He's um, being all charming for the cameras. And in the middle of it, he starts to look a bit nervous and the crew starts to kind of wonder, why is he a bit off his game? They start to think that maybe he's going to propose to his girlfriend in the middle of the live TV broadcast. At the end of the broadcast, he reaches into his pocket, but instead of pulling out a, a ring, he pulls out a gun and shoots himself on live television. And that's the opening of the book. One million people witnessed it. But Sam's brother, Harry, just doesn't believe it was suicide. He wants Jack Quick to investigate it. Where does Harry go to ask Jack to take on this case? Harry has to convince Jack to take on the case from prison because Jack has wound up in prison at the end of the events of the last novel. So, yeah, he's got to go into the prison and kind of convince Jack. And Jack's a bit hard on his luck because he's been in prison for 18 months. So he's uh, kind of keen when Harry dangles a check, a blank check, basically in front of him. There's a reason why Jack needs money. What's that? Jack's supporting his family he's raised by a single father and his brother had an accident when he was in child and so he's in a um, permanent vegetative state he's in a coma basically and Jack is paying for the upkeep of the end-of-life care because he doesn't want to make the decision whether to turn the machines off or not so the more money he can get out of this investigation the longer he can keep his brother alive well, Jack's dad is there to pick Jack up outside the prison, but there's also Ryan there, and Ryan wants Jack to investigate a completely different case. What, what was that case about? Yeah, so Ryan's interested in his sister's death many years ago, a girl named Lily. She committed suicide um, in a small coastal town many years ago, and Ryan seems to think that there's something a bit suspicious that may link these two crimes this modern suicide on the television and the suicide of his um of his sister all those years ago so that's why he kind of gets himself involved where lily lived and sam and um harry lived was in this tiny little place called wheeler's cove and i think a lot of us probably know this type of little little coastal town give us a little bit more feel about it 
Yes, so Willis Cove is the type of town that I suppose expands over summer and then shrinks over winter. It's very small. Um, the residents are very close-knit. The nearest cop's about a half an hour drive away. And one of the centrepieces in the novel is the transient fairground that comes through Wheelers Cove every year. And so there's this kind of semi-tacky, rusted, bolted-together fairground with a Ferris wheel and a small roller coaster and um, side shows and carnies. And the carnies don't quite fit in with the locals either. Um, so, yeah, it's just that kind of salt-laden summer holiday spot uh, and then the people that live there. On the night that Lily died, Sam and Harry could not have been involved because they had a most secure alibi. Where were they? So they were riding the Ferris wheel at the fairground um, and nobody realised that they were on the Ferris wheel. And so they all, the ride operator left and they were stuck up there all night. So the night that Lily died, they were both suspended 10 metres in the air in a Ferris wheel and they had to get rescued the morning after. So their alibis are pretty watertight. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of Sam feels a bit guilty for being up in that Ferris wheel when um, he was at the time when she she died. Mm. Well, 13 years on, back to the TV station. On the first page of uh, Benjamin Stevenson's book, The Other Side of Midnight, we have a description of a cameraman, and I'm quoting, his chair was mounted to the same rig as the camera so he could swivel with it like a machine gun turret. So it's building the tension of behind the scenes. There's Gareth Bowman, the CEO of Channel 14, and Jack describes him as key cup and play squash. That shows he cares about the environment and plays a land sport with goggles on. How did Jack get into Channel 4 and, and what's he offering the CEO? Yeah, so basically Jack used to be a podcaster. He used to do true crime podcasts, which were the events of the first novel. And he kind of, the reason he's in jail is because he interferes with the police investigation while trying to make his TV show more exciting. So he used to work at Channel 4. Um, he kind of talks his way back in because he's got Harry's money in his pocket, so he needs to do a good job. And he basically tells the CEO that he will make him another show if he can find it out. But he also puts to account their ethical responsibilities in letting something like this go out live to air um, that families and children have seen. So uh, that's kind of how he effectively a bit of blackmail and a bit of enticement he convinces um, Gareth to let him dig around the TV station. Now, there's a ratings war. There's rumours that Beth Waters, now she's the executive producer on Midnight Tonight, she may have been offered a job, but she's got history with Sam and she also knows Harry. How does she know them? When they got stuck on the Ferris wheel, Sam and Harry, they were interviewed because they were um, identical twins and they were seen to be quite a, a funny kind of double act and they went a bit viral. Um, off their television interviews on that. And Beth worked on one of the early television shows and then she stuck with them both as they moved into Sam's own mm -hmm. show um, as a producer. And, yeah, so she's very um, invested in her career and television's very cutthroat. So when Channel 12 comes knocking, she's obviously interested. Channel 12 is also interested in potentially poaching Sam um, versus Channel 14, also trying to poach Channel 12's host. So it's all a bit of that corporate television politics plays down in the background as well. 
corporate politics. Yeah, we know about that. But we also know about detectives, and Jack is not a conventional detective. He has a problem and doesn't like to refer to it, so uses the B word. What's that? Yeah, so Jack has an eating disorder. He has bulimia. And that's generated from his brother's accident. It's kind of manifested in PTSD um, because his brother can't consume food properly. He has to gurgle it through a tube. So it's kind of manifested it in that way, but it's also developed on his low self-esteem and um, his kind of sense of his own masculinity gets all kind of warped in that because it's traditionally not seen as a, a male disease. So Jack's grappling with that. And he's not, you're right, he's not a usual detective because he you know he can't take a punch he can't walk into a room and figure out who the killer is and bite them and win um so he's got to kind of use his smart to get out of it quoting another bit from uh, the other side of midnight he also has cold hands bad, bad circulation and scars on the backs of his knuckles from jamming his fingers down his throat skin broken and rehealed, split under teeth and how thin his fingers were. They could pick locks. How does Jack describe the feelings inside his body? Bulimia is, is consuming and, and purging and then anorexia on the other side is not consuming at all. So he kind of feels like he's in the middle of a circle of um, kind of classic Roman soldiers, you know, with the big square shields and the, and the red feathered helmets. And they kind of stand in a circle and they, they push their way in, clamp him inside their kind of, Soldier circle, basically. Is this your imagination, Benjamin, or, or you know, have you done some reading about it? Because I thought it was just very graphic. Uh, certainly, I did a lot of very, very heavy research. Yeah, I think I wanted to do a really genuine, a genuine approach and make him real and not use it sensationally. It's, it's really kind of a part of who he is. It kind of can mix in depending on what he's thinking about. Like when he weighs up his kind of masculinity or his place in the world, then that kind of can start to reflect on on my own opinions a little bit as well as all the research. I'd once again like to quote a few things about this because I think it gives an idea of just where his state of mind is too. Jack hadn't had breakfast, so his internal soldiers were unalarmed but wary, shields laid down nearby. And then when Jack has a, a drink of alcohol, his, his soldiers were just like any other battalion and getting off on the source made them bawdy. And another time, his soldiers were sleeping, fed. Mm. You know, there were a number of very, very insightful lines about soldiers and just how the internals work. There's also a lot of issues in the book about death. Who can choose? Or can someone coerce you to... There are many ways you can make somebody do something they don't want to do. You know, you can plead with them or embarrass them or blackmail them. And then there's that whole thing about social media. Well, do you think coercion is worse with social media? Can words kill? I mean, the book is very much about the power of words. Um, but what was fascinating to me when researching this book is that was kind of the point of the book that I started out writing. Then as I researched it, it goes back and back and back. Uh, people have been using it, using words in harmful ways forever in specifically, say, coercive cases. Um, I mentioned a lot of things in the book and they're all genuine real events that have happened and it's terrifying. And the really scary thing is that it has always existed, but the reach has got wider. 
and the ability to access things has got easier for lots and lots of people. So that's kind of the the modern take on it and why I was interested in it. Yeah, it, that was absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. But I think one of the other main issues is you question the characters, especially Jack, about what it is to be a grown man. Were you aware just how many of those characters had to revision themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's very much about people's place in the world and how they see themselves. And I was really interested in that because I think that we're coming a long way as a society in understanding people and how people's brains work. Um, many people, many people's minds kind of work differently and process things differently. And we're starting to understand that. And as a young author, I wanted to really kind of look into these these things. I mean, Jack's bulimia is commonly associated as a female disease, so he doesn't quite fit in where he thinks he slots there. Sam's suicide, you know, we're talking about kind of social media and depression, and, and these are things that a lot of men are told to grow out of. And so at one point, you know, somebody accuses him of, what do you think, he's a teenage boy, he's a grown man, and is kind of looking at the fact that people don't just grow out of these things and they exist um, the same in, in an adult as they do in, in a teenager. And so that kind of grown man thing grew out of that. And I love the way that you've got the male characters in this book to grow and respect each other. Harry and Jack, it starts off as a business thing, but you feel that there's something there. There's also Jack and Detective David Winter Quote, you can tell me why every time we zip a bag up, you happen to be there. And so under this uh, detective police, there could be something more male aware there. So what is connecting the deaths of Sam and Lily? They knew each other when they were kids and now they're both dead. Well, you'll have to read the book to find out why. But there's other aspects of the book. I love the way you, you just did your single one-off lines. Coming back to, I suppose, your past occupation of being a comedian. Yeah, I, I like a good one-liner. I think that um, word economy is something that you learn as a comic and I wanted Jack to be, I mean, these are, it's, it's a dark book, it's a crime novel, but I don't, don't think that should take away someone's ability to be wry have a kind of wicked sense of humour and Jack kind of brings that in a very Australian, sometimes blackly funny way, but he's, he's often got a quip prepared. So I enjoy writing him a lot. The way that he can sum up people so quickly, like looking at Ryan, the love interest, bong friendly, best friend. The detective wouldn't talk and he said he's tight as a brace face in school photos. <laughs> This, this is very clever stuff. Where you've got your stuff from, as you said, you've got your, your history about suicide, coercion, you've got the co collection of quotes from graffiti in, in theatres, and then you go on to talking about a literary agent. Is the dartboard of an author's petulance indebted to your literary agent for the absorption of your darts? I thought that was pretty, pretty smart. Oh, I just think my, my agent has put up with a lot. And writing is a very internal activity and it's a very stressful activity. And I, I try to be very well behaved, but sometimes everyone gets a bit fussy, especially when you're working in art. And so I think, yeah, agents and publishers all are the dartboards of many authors and they deserve the highest praise. Well, we started with television, talking about a television show and you know a TV promo has sex, money, 
greed, power, drugs, and revenge. Well, so does this book, The Other Side of Midnight by Benjamin Stevenson. Thank you very much, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me. And now it's David's turn. Young men face inordinate challenges in the struggle to find their identity. Tobias McCorkle in his novel, Everything in Its Right Place, delves into the personal, social and sexual pressures boys face on their journey to adulthood. So, Tobias, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. Coburg boy, Ford McCullen, crosses the Yarra River to attend an elite school. Just how real is that divide, in Melbourne especially? I think it's quite real. I grew up in Coburg, like the character, and I did cross the river and and attended school at St. Kevin's College in Turak. And that experience obviously informed the structure for the novel, but that experience informed what would later become one of my core subjects, which is social class in Australia. That comes through very clearly. I mean, there are a whole set of expectations associated with an elite school, which you do call St Anthony's, just below Scotch. But there are expectations within the school that your character, Ford, directly challenges. So, for example, he's taken to task by the housemaster. You don't like it here, Mr McCullen. Well, not particularly, sir. Then why come? Well, I mean, that's kind of a silly question, really. I don't have a choice, do I? I'm sent here and my family wants me here. Daniel seemed taken aback by my candidness. Our chat was beginning to feel very important. I could see that my small dose of truth, my refusal to uphold the formalities of interactions between staff and student, was sending the housemaster's world into a state of near chaos. So you're challenging the system in many ways by your very presence there. Yeah. You know, we we have this idea that the more money you spend on something, the better that thing is. But private schools, I think you you also buy into a set of values as well. And um, you're buying more than an education. You're buying a lifestyle. And I just wanted to sort of shine a light on that a little bit as well, because I think that that was something I struggled with going to the school that I went to where I just didn't feel like it was probably not the right fit for me. The parental expectations are also damning and demanding. What my family never got was that it was their insistence on blending in that caused them to stand out. So it's this very desire to be part of that system that alienates them. Yes, that's right. And I think, again, that comes back to this issue of class for me, where, you know, the experience of transcending or crossing class boundaries is a, a painful one for people. And it's it's one that I think a lot of people have experienced in their life. It's also a, a daily occurrence, you know, trying to slip into the stream of another class strata, trying to take on a a way of being in the world. But if it's not something that you're accustomed to, obviously you read from that passage, the things that you might try and do to fit in are the very same things that are going to um, single you out as not being a part of that world. And that is something that I've noticed a little bit in my personal life, I suppose. But uh, yes, this topic of class just keeps resonating for me. 
manhood and male sexuality are also in the spotlight. Ford plays football, but go hard, be strong. But these are just cliches for manhood. Yeah, go hard and go strong sort of echoes throughout the book. You know, play hard, go at life hard. Um, I think that, you know, I was alerted to these cliches. I remember, I remember hearing somebody say that they felt flat as opposed to, you know, depressed or sad or unhappy. And I thought that that was such an interesting way of disguising a real feeling underneath a, a different phrase, putting, putting a spin on it. And I was, I was thinking a lot about male identity, I guess, and, and various masculine codes that you take on and, and how that is entrenched in language and the language that men use. Part of the problem is a lack of discourse when it comes, I think, to male sexuality and, the fi- and male feelings as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, one advantage that I do see women having is, is a culture of talking, a culture of having an open discourse about what it is to be a woman in the world, whereas men um, tend not to have that discourse for various reasons. And so I think that that was something I wanted to contribute to, was to talk about, um, you know, you mentioned male sexuality, and I, I think it's a lot more varied and complex than what we get in culture and social discourse generally. And I think that there's a lack of honesty around male feelings and male sexuality and the the spectrum of those feelings and of that sexuality and sexual expressiveness. Another challenge is this sense of Ford being on the cusp of chaos or even death. I mean, there's a scene where he finds a rifle, there's the hoon driving scene. And as a reader, you're thinking or expecting as part of a narrative, oh, I know what's going to happen here. But it's that sense of endangerment that's there that it could break apart at any minute. Yeah. I think that men at a certain age, the the behaviour, the transgression, the rituals of transgression, um, the acting out and, and testing the, the boundaries of, of life, um, you know, they come with grave consequences. I mean, if you look at, um, for men, the rates of things like incarceration, suicide, depression, alcoholism, gambling, addiction, um, you know, it's sort of profoundly uh, male in those areas. And men have this kind of destructive nature, perhaps, um, to them. I think that it's a miracle if you're a teenager and you're a, a guy, if you sort of come out of it unscathed. In my personal life, I've seen people go to jail, people end up with an arrest record that affects their employment in the future. I've had a very close friend commit suicide. You know, I've heard stories of reckless driving and I've seen the, you know, the binge drinking and the fighting and the the various things that come with with that sort of behavior. It can be a profoundly lethal thing to be born male and come up through the culture and survive. You know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. But also, I, I want to say that women are often the victims or sufferers of men's worst behaviour as well. Um, and that's something that's spotlighted in the book as well. There are other fundamental questions here uh, regarding the examples set by parents. 
I mean, Ford's mother is bitter because of the breakdown of her marriage and acts out. I wondered if she didn't secretly nurture a desire to see such disruptions as had ended her own marriage meted out to every woman who assumed she was safe in her union. So Ford has to basically work with and account for his mother's conduct. Yeah, that's right. It's a coming-of-age story, but that doesn't necessarily mean that only the protagonist is the person coming of age. I think that one of the backdrops of the work I'm doing in that novel is perhaps looking at the fact that we're all sort of in a permanent state of adolescence, of coming into maturity, of having to work through whatever life has thrown at us. And that doesn't change necessarily with age and it doesn't necessarily change with with experience either. I think that, uh, you know, life is just this ongoing process. And what you see in the book is that Ford's adolescence and that coming of age is being echoed within the within the adult characters as well. There's also the relationship and the background of the relationship, which we won't touch on, will allow the reader to find out for themselves. But Ford is particularly close to his mother, and there's an unravelling of that. But also then, there's Ford's relationship with his father, who has left the marriage because he's struggling not just with his own sexuality, but also with his own identity because he's adopted. Yeah, that's right. Again, it's this it's this idea of having these echoes of the adolescent experience, the coming of age, wrestling with all that life is throwing at you, uh, happening in the adult characters around Ford as well. So, yeah, in the, in the case of the father, you know, again, age is not... Uh, an indicator of maturity. You've got a man who is acting out in a lot of ways, who is as irresponsible as any of the boys might be, but who is also finding himself and is, is, as you say, wrestling with his own identity and coming into what we might call sexual maturity in terms of his sexual identity. So, you know, you're just seeing adolescent experience being sort of echoed later in life. His father is also not admitting or being open necessarily about his sexuality, which is part of the problem. It's not part of that discourse. But his father's conduct, shall we say, does endanger Ford. Again, I think we're going to let the reader work that out for themselves. But lastly, then, their sex comes into play. There's Ellie, who is Moose's girlfriend, and there's William, who is a school friend. How much can we say about those two relationships? I don't want to give too much of the book away, so maybe we'll sort of back away from those and and let the readers find out the conclusion to those narrative elements. However, I I will say that it was fun writing those characters, and uh, I am particularly interested with how readers respond to Ford's uh, various relationships, whether they be romantic or or friendship-based within the book. And uh, yeah, Ali and Will come up, and uh, from early readers, I've had varying reactions to how those uh, narrative lines pan out. Ultimately, there's seemingly a disconnection as each relationship is brought to a head and then unravels. 
is that what it means to find your identity a disconnection in some ways in terms of is disconnection perhaps a, an element of identity i i think so i think that's an, a really interesting point you make david i think that perhaps disconnecting from things is how we establish our, our identity uh, letting things go deciding you know that we're not going to have relationships with certain people that we're going to walk the other way it's an interesting idea and probably one i should think more about well the book is everything in its right place and it would be an ideal uh, novel for young men to read in terms of finding the language and the discourse needed to talk about the identity and sexuality the author is Tobias McCorkle, and it's a Transit Lounge release. So, Tobias, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Listen in next week. Bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.